Hi, I'm Rachna. I'm Natalie. And I'm Christy. And welcome to the Triage Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Triage. We're so excited to have you all with us today. We will be continuing our Social Determinants of Health series. And today's episode will be focusing on food and community and social context. We feel like these two factors really interconnect very well, and this is our first episode in which we'll be talking about two social determinants of health in one episode. But as we mentioned before, we do feel like a lot of the social determinants of health are interrelated and could be connected to each other very easily. To break down our two factors today, food, um, the two main components of food are hunger and access to healthy food options. And the multiple components of community and social context are social integration, support systems, community engagement, discrimination, and stress. Yeah, so we have, um, kind of like our last episodes, we have a few examples of how, of what makes up these different parts of the social determinants of health and how they can lead to negative health outcomes. Um, so we're just going to walk through a few of those and a lot of those will seem familiar to you because we all unfortunately participate in a lot of these um, negative health outcomes because sometimes they are things that are actually most of the time they're things that are out of our control but a lot of what we will be highlighting today are some things that we can control and can either um, you know pause in participating in some of these activities or you know keep ourselves educated about how to effectively move through life without um, damaging different communities and leading to their um, negative health outcomes. Yeah, and the first thing that we really wanted to touch upon in this episode was voluntourism. So we all know from college there's so many people going on these mission trips where they were traveling to some other country and just helping and volunteering with the communities over there. And it kind of makes us reflect, especially during these times when these mission trips can't be happening, on are these mission trips really actually helping the community as much as that we think that they are, or we would hope that they would be. And especially with a lot of these mission trips, it does help for the short term when you are going, say it's like a medical trip, it does help for the short term when you're seeing the patients and they are getting access to med- um, medical care in that instance. So when we think about the long term, we have to think about is this sustainable? And especially with COVID, a lot of these mission trips aren't happening anymore. These people can't go and volunteer in these communities. And now these communities don't have any sorts of care. They were relying on these mission trips almost to get the medical care that they needed. But I think it has to come down to um, making these mission trips better and just making them more goal-oriented and creating more sustainable solutions for these communities. I agree and I think more emphasis on education before people go on mission trips whether it be learning the language of the community that they'll be or languages of the community that they will be serving and also um, just thinking about how they can instead focus on making communities rely on them for impact to focus mission trips or focus volunteer trips on training um, 
training members of a community in a culturally sensitive way where we're we're meeting people where they're at we're meeting them where their culture is and not imposing our beliefs or are what we think is necessary or you know the best option um and ensuring that there's longevity in the community and that the community can self-sustain itself without having to rely on on volunteerism because I know this has been happening a lot, but with nonprofits, even just in the states or in the countries you are in, um, the goal of nonprofits is to eventually not be here anymore. You know, nonprofits, if you're doing it for the right reason, you want the communities to be better and you want life to be better for everyone and you want communities to self-sustain themselves. So we have to think about that too as well. Like if nonprofits are or volunteers tier organizations are focusing on having communities rely on them you have to think about why they're there in the first place which is interesting I really like that perspective and I could talk about this for so long I get very frustrated with this because the intention is there but we always have to talk about intention versus impact and with this um this entire like ideology I guess um one there's so much money being spent that could just be invested into the community. Um, that's a huge thing. And number two, probably my biggest thing, is that why are you getting on a plane um, to help a community when you have the ability to give back to the community that's right next door to you? Not that it's not that people who are going to these, um, participating in these mission trips are... Um, bad of heart it's the opposite they have really big hearts and they want to give back and this is the way that they know how and I think it's on us as a society to make it more uh normalized I guess of giving back to your own community and a huge way of doing that which people don't always realize is investing money because that's the most important thing and I don't necessarily mean building a community structure yourself but donating to nonprofits in your community who have the tools, have the knowledge, have the ability, have the social connections to make the changes they want, but they lack funding. That's always a huge issue is that they lack funding. And um, we're also going to talk about, too, with um, meal donations as well. That's a huge thing. So the difference between food charity and food justice is something that we're all learning a little bit more about. So... Food charity is something we're all really familiar with. It's the process of going to a food bank, maybe, and, you know, uh, volunteering with your community. I know in elementary school at Thanksgiving, we would always donate canned foods. And a little different than my view on volunteerism, I think that that's needed right now. I think that we should never stop having food pantries or participating um, in giving back to the community through food. Um, but the, the, the difference is that we also need a societal change in which this is like a broken feedback loop where folks don't have access to higher paying jobs or we're going to, we talked about food deserts last week and we're going to talk about them once again in a little bit. There's like a broken system where if we work to fix those components, then food will be highly more accessible and that's what food justice is. So kind of shifting the narrative is something that the nonprofit I work um, for really always talks about is shifting the narrative from we need to we need to better furnish like 
food charity or better established food charity when it's we have to work with what we have but we need to start moving forward to towards food justice as well for a long-term solution that's more equitable i agree and the points that you made are all connected together like about the what you said about volunteering abroad versus your own community and the same thing with food pantries and food justice um, you know, we, we all went to school at Rutgers University and it's in New Brunswick. And while Rutgers is a colonial college and it's been here forever, I mean, there are a lot of great resources that we can share about acknowledging that it is built on native land and it was mostly built by slaves. That's what happened, you know, unfortunately with all of the colonial colleges, there's that, that unfortunate fact. And there are a lot of great readings like Scarlet and Black, part one and two, and also, Are You Past Present? They have an Instagram and we'll share that. And they, they kind of go into what that book is about. But New Brunswick has been a community that has um, honestly been used for the university. And the university hasn't really given back. And it's kind of been on the backs of a lot of students to give back to the community that we're surrounded by. Um, a lot of students from New Brunswick end up going to Rutgers. And the the volunteer work in the community isn't as coveted as those the volunteer work that people will do let's say in other states when they travel or go to a different country and that's something that we can totally um we can totally participate in is normalize and celebrate activities to participate in volunteering and building up communities around our universities because so many people get into college based on their community work and traveling abroad when they're in high school. Um, but then once you get to college, there's not that, it's more of a transa transactional relationship between the community that your university is in. And unfortunately, a lot of elite schools are surrounded by communities that haven't been um, benefited by being near a community where a lot of young people can really help build them up. So it's just, it's interesting when, it, when, there, when there are universities involved and well-meaning people at universities. I always think about the students that live off campus. Again, I only have experience at Rutgers University, but the rent is definitely increased to reflect the need of students. And there's so many families living in that, like you know, on the same block essentially. But the rent's increased. The price of food is increased. Um, there's so many different factors that we don't always consider what happens when a university. Like I've seen studies that talk about that the community. Um, doesn't thrive or flourish when there's a surrounding university because all of those resources are taken by the university. Yeah, especially when you think about maybe younger kids who are living in those neighborhoods in the surrounding areas of colleges. I could see as a parent, you wouldn't want, well, I'm not a parent, but <laughs> just in general, as like a parent, they probably wouldn't want their kids to be around that environment where there's kids partying until 2 a.m. and they're just trashing the streets with like liquor bottles and all this stuff. It's not a safe environment for, yeah, for parents to be raising their kids in. And, you know, especially with the gentrification, the prices go up, they can't afford to live in the community or the house that maybe generations of people before them have lived in. So they're being pushed out into unsafer areas and the problem just kind of perpetuates itself in that way. And I, I can't remember if we talked about this. We're going we're gonna, to uh, end up checking this. But something that Christy Rutchen and I have been talking about for a few months now is that 
an elementary school in New Brunswick is going to be hopefully there's a lot of community support to avoid this but um, the plan is to close a elementary school in New Brunswick to replace it with a cancer pavilion for um, funded by like Robert Wood Johnson and the New Jersey Cancer Institute and it's just problematic for so many reasons the primary one being in that the original plan this was all before covid but the original plan was to begin building um in late summer and that was going to disrupt the students' school year so they were going to have to they there was not a replacement school for these students mind you this school was close to so many homes of the students where they could be walkers that's what we used to call them by elementary school where you could walk from school to home and that's such an important component for parents who work, um, for a safety aspect for children, like just having a school in your neighborhood, there's only benefits I feel like, like it's very important. And these students are gonna be bused like multiple miles away, like probably over 15, 20 minutes away. Um, There was not a new school ready for them. They were gonna have to have classes in a warehouse for the time being while they waited for the new school to be built. Um, And then COVID hit, so a lot of this was on pause, but there was a lot of community pushback from the New Brunswick community saying, like, hey, like, this, you, the, our land was just sold for the school. Like, you didn't ask the parents and the students how they felt about this and the teachers and the other community members. Like, teachers work in that school, janitors work in that school, lunch aides work in that school. Like, there were so many components that weren't thought about. Yeah, and it's, we, in our education episode, we talk about how, literacy, language, early childhood education, higher education, like all of these things are important to building healthy outcomes for a community. And it's interesting that these children are being displaced by a hospital, essentially, which is going to do good for people with cancer and the community, but we can't also be negatively affecting a community at that same place. I mean, it all comes together because it's all connected. So if we're taking away access to education, who knows what can what outcomes come from that? Yeah, and kind of, I guess this point kind of ties into COVID and education in general, but if we're thinking about how the education system is most likely going to work for the next year, it's going to be people being homeschooled, which was how it was for the past few months, but if we think about working mothers in those types of communities where they need to be working all the time to kind of afford to pay uh, to feed their children, now they're going to have to worry about how are my kids going to learn properly. They can't be at home all the time working with their children on their education, so they kind of have to balance these two aspects. and it does really hurt the community when things like this happen because, especially poorer communities, because they can't really work to balance these two things. It's just not feasible for them. Yeah, and I mean, maternity care in general, even if it's just maternity leave, um, giving mostly mothers because they do end up taking a lot of that unpaid labor for a family, you know, schooling not happening and working mothers having to then also teach children. And um, I I read an article somewhere that someone that I work with shared that COVID is going to be like the end of the working mother. Um, And that's something that's very important to a lot of people. Um, People do still want to be able to have both sides of life. Um, 
and this is going to be very indicative of what that looks like in the future but even just in New Jersey and in New Brunswick like as we're on the topic of um, like the community and the hospitals that surround it and what the policies in place are um, a lot of students who were healthcare focused at Rutgers were very focused on maternity care and um, and reproductive care in general because it is very important to the New Jersey community and um, New Jersey has a very high um, c-section rate um, an unfortunate um, maternity uh, mortality rate and also um, there have been a lot of issues with screening for postnatal you know a perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and that all comes just from maternity care in general, but a lot of it is from cultural sensitivity in healthcare in New Jersey, um, a lack of, of physicians who speak multiple languages, a lack of physicians who are from different communities. Um, and a lot of that is in New Brunswick as well, um, where we all went to school. And it's in the same community where the children are losing um, access to their quality education, where there's gentrification, getting pushed in from the university and so it's all tied together but it really does all fall back to the community and social context because um, humans are not all the same um, and need and have different needs and if most maternity care is only focused on on white women and people from that community then the outcomes of of mothers and children are going to look a lot different for different types of people so um, and unfortunately, we just see it so, so much in New Jersey. So another aspect that's been plaguing communities is having healthy access to food. If you think about America in general, obesity is such an epidemic that's just lasted for so long. And unfortunately, it kind of makes sense. If you go to the grocery store, if you're trying to buy vegetables, it actually all adds up. It's more expensive than it should be. And if you go to like a McDonald's or Burger King, you can get a meal for like under $5. So unfortunately for people who are poorer, they just can't afford to buy healthy foods in order to help their kids have like a healthier lifestyle. So especially, I mean, I always come back to New Brunswick. If we look at the New Brunswick options, I don't know if you guys have ever shopped at some of the stores that are around the area, but they are very expensive. You, all, you even have to pay for the parking to park at the grocery store. So, yeah, there's just so many issues that COVID has also kind of highlighted, too, with these food insecurities. It's not only are people not having work, not having jobs to earn money and bring money back to their families, but now they can't even afford to put healthy food on the table. So we're resorting back to these unhealthy eating habits that we're trying to kind of fight off with all of these new policies. And yeah, it's just kind of something that has been perpetuating itself and I honestly don't see it stopping at any point in the near future. Yeah, and I saw someone tweet in, I mean, I think Twitter is such a good mode. I mean, it's very, it affects my mental health a lot because it's so much information, but I saw this really good tweet that touches on this, that not even just food deserts and access to healthy food um, are impacting people's health from what they're eating, but 
when your parents work so much or whoever runs your household is working so much and you as a child or as a teenager are in charge of feeding your family and making food for let's say your siblings or your whole family what is quicker chopping up a bunch of vegetables and making sides and making sure everyone has all of their food groups or like heating up a frozen meal you know or like heating up a frozen pizza or getting something from um from a fast food restaurant like stuff takes time and also healthy options are so gentrified now and like vegan options we kind of touched on this in the in our environment episode but like veganism doesn't have to be expensive like a lot of these things don't have to be expensive it's just mostly white people have made it like a business opportunity for them to make money off of healthy food and like exercise and like that whole wellness branch of things and you would think with like the expensive price of fruits and vegetables now and the prices are just growing you would think okay well at least are the farmers being justly compensated but they're not whether um, their land is being bought out by corporations who are trying to monopolize on certain like crops or um, a lot of um, agricultural workers are um, undocumented folks who don't get time off, don't get sick leave, don't get comp- like don't get paid well, they're not paid even close to a living wage. And what's the result? It's like that leads to stress, which leads to affecting their home life, which is, no access to health care. It's just that broken cycle of just not being justly, like just not being justly compensated, not being treated fairly, like having your human rights um, compromised. And then it also, that cycle just continues when the food is um, charged at such a high price. So it just continues. And what can be connected to even just not food deserts in terms of access to food but access to food that is culturally important to a community um we were talking about before we hopped on that like a lot of the grocery stores will have like one or two aisles dedicated to quote-unquote ethnic food options um but for different communities food is so important to them and having access to the ingredients that they need um it's just builds community and from what we see especially on the east coast you know we're so close to new york city and new brunswick is is a is an immigrant neighborhood as well um food is a gathering opportunity for people and to build community but so are just spaces in general and community centers libraries um outdoor parks and there has been a lot of work in um many communities and we've seen that in a lot of the communities we live in um and around the country and we talked about this in our environment episode but when things like gentrification happen or when you know buildings are torn down to build um other buildings for that would make more money or that would benefit a university or a healthcare system it starts to impede on those gathering spaces and how a community self I don't know it builds itself up we were talking about voluntourism and mission trips and how we need to focus more on building out building up a community so that they can self-sustain themselves and don't need to rely on on other people or other countries we can do that in our communities as well just by giving more options and being and being more culturally sensitive to the areas that we live in especially the areas that we move to I mean we all I mean 
contributing to gentrification is so easy and that's why it happens so quickly because it's handed to people on a silver platter who want to move to hip hot areas i'm using air quotes that you can't see um but i don't know it's an easier option so more people fall into that where if we just take a little bit more time to research and um and think about where we're moving what we're spending money on um you know life can be a lot better for more people and not just us absolutely and i think that really connects when you're talking about cultural sensitivity i think that really connects to cultural appropriation which can cause a lot of stress on different communities um, which is the practice of taking a cultural practice and not practice not practicing it properly or respectfully more practicing it for just like uh self-satisfaction i guess you could say like for instance um dressing a certain way in terms of dressing in clothing that would be ceremonial to a different culture but for yourself you're just dressing in it because you think it looks like cute i guess um purchasing clothing and jewelry of different cultures without supporting those cultures directly so christy you want to talk about the story that you were reading that you were sharing with us earlier before we were recording yeah um so this has been a big conversation lately just as more people become aware of uh, cultural appropriation and looking into where you're purchasing items from or learning more about what you're purchasing so i know dream catchers has been a huge topic of discussion because a few years ago it was so trendy to hang up a dream catcher and people on etsy would be creating them and they were super cute people get it tattooed uh, to the people get it tattooed yeah and um it one. exactly and it actually there are a lot of it's very ceremonial and their um dream catchers are i don't really i don't want to speak on behalf of communities but um, a lot of people have been educating us, and it's mostly Native and Indigenous communities um, to the U.S., um, in saying that it's very ceremonial, it's very important, and it's passed down by generations. So when you're purchasing something and ma- or making it yourself and you're not part of a community, I mean, one, it's not really doing what it's supposed to be doing. And also, um, when you're commodifying something that you don't know much about and making money off of it, when the communities that you're um, appropriating are have high rates of poverty um, and food insecurity and now high rates of COVID-19. I mean, you just have to think about that more. And similar things have been happening with um, jewelry companies. A lot of, it's mostly white women, are, you know, have shops online, again, Etsy, and they're saying that their jewelry is quote-unquote authentic Navajo jewelry, but they're not actually using, um, you know, the real materials, like the real turquoise that Native communities would be using, and they say that their jewelry is made by uh, members of the Navajo Nation, but it's not, and so the money is being given all to those white women who are creating or sourcing the jewelry and not to the communities that created the style, created the tradition, um, and would, let's say we, it's okay for people not part of that culture to wear the jewelry, um, you know, they're not making the money that they deserve off of it. The artists put a lot of thought and a lot of work into creating beautiful jewelry, and it's being appropriated by other people, and 
a lot of the people who have been called out and one, as I know, I'm a white woman, something that we can be doing to help um, is not speaking for another community. So I'm not trying to do that now. I will share um, what I'm talking about on our Instagram so you can see where this is coming from. But you can call out. Um, a lot of these women have been blocking indigenous voices when they're calling them out. And that is just disgusting, honestly. And um, like, unfortunately, you do have that privilege as a white person to comment and not get blocked from some of these people. So something that I've been doing is commenting and calling out and saying, you're culturally appropriating, you're not listening to native voices. Um, and that's something that you can do with your privileges, use your voice, use your privilege to call people out. And unfortunately, the one woman I'm thinking of in particular has been like making fun of people and suing people, threatening to sue people. And it's just like, I don't know, unbelievable that someone really is that tied to the money that they make off of another community. And so we just all need to stop doing that. <laughs> and like it happens all the time. People. It happens and it, so much. And like, it happens at a huge level takes, too. Everyone takes the pretty parts of every type of culture yes. and they love to use that and wear it proudly. But then what about all the other stuff that happens? with the culture they do not they want to embrace some parts but they don't want to deal with the ugly parts of the racism all that other stuff so I don't know it's just so sad to see and one example that I think of when I think about cultural appropriation is the whole Elizabeth Warren thing how I, I don't know how long it was ago it was now at this point a year or two ago where she said she had Native American ancestry and it ended up only being like one percent but she was just trying, basically trying to use the example or like the um, the benefit of saying, yes, I am a cultural woman and I come, I my ancestors are Native American. She was trying to use that for her political platform without actually having any of the culture tied to and associated with it. And it's or just helping so helping people from the culture. Exactly. Yeah. I was just going to say that as well. So it's just so crazy to see how people try to take advantage of all these different aspects of the community but then refuse to help the communities out and I think everything that you know that we've talked about today kind of all leads to generational trauma not having food available not having maternity care and access to healthy food during pregnancy not being able to feed their kids the proper amount of food not being able to educate them their schools are being torn down by hospitals. All of this stuff is just kind of leading to this generational trauma where poverty kind of perpetuates itself and the generations can't be, they're falling, they're sliding down and they can't kind of get themselves back up on their feet. Yeah, and then it ties back to the capitalistic ideal that we're all taught of like, well, you have to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just keep on going. And it's like, that's impossible. Yeah. And like, that's impossible without community support and access to good food. Because one, your community is what surrounds you like 24 hours of the day. And two, food is literally how we get through this life. It's what nourishes us. It's what allows us to focus in school and at our jobs. So without that... It allows us to celebrate our culture. Yeah. How can we... Oh my gosh, yeah. Like, when I was growing up, like, we would love to go to Syrian restaurants with my... That's, like, one of my favorite memories. Is like, for my grandma's birthday every single year, we'd always go to um, this one Syrian restaurant in my town. And I can't imagine, like, what those birthdays would be like if that 
was taken like that was taken from us and that's what's happening in some in different places across america are these either these like um foods are being either appropriated in terms of just like com like commodified and like sold to like such a higher price or like just different cultural food places are being shut down because of they're being bought out and then being replaced with like a like a burger king or something like crazy like that you know what i mean like exactly yeah and I think about um, every time we want to end one of our episodes, we try to have some sort of action item or um, resource for you to look into. So we'll link a bunch of resources. But just looking at what we talked about today, I think of two main things um, or three main things. One, all of these social determinants of health that we talk about, I feel like a few years ago when we learned population health, and correct me if I'm wrong, Natalie, um, um, from your public health background, but we were kind of taught that behavior was on the individual and the social determinants yes. of health were yes. on like our own choices and we have accountability to change that. But in reality, everything we're really talking about in these episodes are not really in our control, um, especially if we don't have privilege. Um, but when we do have privilege, we do have the opportunity to impact these things that are uncontrollable for many people. So when I think about, we talk about cultural appropriation a lot in this episode. Think about where you go to restaurants, and I'm guilty of this. I live right next to a Chipotle. Like, I go to Chipotle a lot, but something I'm trying to do is instead go to restaurants that are actually run by people from the community that create the food that I enjoy. Um, so that's something that we all can do if we're privileged enough to do that is actually eat food from people who are from the areas or have some sort of connection to the areas of where this food is created. And also for things like a lot of workout classes have been appropriated. Um, like I think of yoga a lot. Like yeah, it's absolutely. now you think of mostly white women doing yoga where that's not like that's not the case. And so we can, you know, stop going to places like that. Like they're fun, but... Our money and where we go says a lot about community and our money has power. So in our episode a few weeks ago, we talked about going to Black-owned businesses. Like, continue that and continue that with other cultures as well. Like, celebrate and contribute to every small business and everyone who just wants to share their culture with a bunch of people. And also, if you do have white privilege, speak up. And if you're getting called on to call someone out or donate money if you can or comment on something do it share it because it does go a long way with that I feel like Christy just ended that beautifully so well said <laughs> so well said um in our bio we're gonna put a couple links that would be interesting to read up on and with that our episode is done yep check out our Instagram to see some infographics where you can share and learn a little bit more Thanks, everyone. Bye.